This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What role does higher education play in achieving the Sustainable Development Goals? My guest today is Tristan McGowan, author of the new book entitled Higher Education for and Beyond the Sustainable Development Goals, which was published earlier this year. In the book, Tristan interrogates the idea of a so-called developmental university working towards the SDGs, identifying both positive and negative outcomes. So while universities can certainly act as mechanisms for social mobility, they can also do the opposite. And, and in many points in history where access has been restricted to an elite or, or for particular religious or language groups or just for men, for example, it has actually made things worse. Tristan McGowan is a professor of international education at the Institute of Education, University College London. I spoke with Tristan in his office in London, which just so happens to be around the corner from mine. This is actually the first podcast I've recorded since starting at my new institutional home at the Institute of Education. There's a lot more to say about the future of Fresh Ed now that I live and work in London, but I'm going to wait until next year to tell you more about it. For now, enjoy our latest episode with Tristan, and stay tuned for our end-of-the-year show with Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, which will air next week. Tristan McCallan, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I want to start by talking a little bit about the SDGs, but specifically about higher education, because this is something that might not get talked about as much as primary or secondary schooling. So where in the SDGs and the Sustainable Development Goals is higher education even mentioned? So I think it's, it's worth thinking about what comes before the SDGs to talk about how it, it does appear. And um, in, in the Millennium Development Goals that came before, there was a conspicuous absence of, of higher education there. So the, the education goal was around primary education. Um, I suppose higher education might be included in the, the requirement for gender equality that was also there, but it was, it was absent in the education goal. And this was also indicative of a, a, a general neglect of higher education in the development community for some decades before. So the, the inclusion of higher education in the SDGs marks something of a return, a rekindling of interest in higher education generally in development. And there was a lot of discussion um, in the consultation around the creation of what was going to replace the NDGs about how higher education might, might be included in that. In the SDGs themselves, the, the most obvious inclusion of higher education is in how it appears as a target in itself. Uh, it, it appears along with um, vocational education, tertiary education, and a specific mention of university. So that's the access goal. It's not very demanding in my view. Uh, it doesn't require universal access or anything resembling that. It, what it requires is a equal access, which as we know from international law is really around non-discrimination. It's an important requirement, but it's not very demanding on states. Mm. But nevertheless, it, it, it is there. Uh, and I think it's very important that university is mentioned as in terms of access, getting people into university or some form of higher education. But that's not the only way that it appears in the SDG. In the book, I distinguish between three different ways it appears. So there's that first one we've talked about, which is access, and then two others. The second is as part of the education system as a whole. And this relates to 
one of your previous podcasts that was talking about um, SDG 4.7 and the, you know, the overarching aims of education in terms of promoting global citizenship, sustainable development itself. So higher education fits into that. It's part of the education system and it might promote a lot of the, the goals that we would like to see in society. The third role for higher education is the one that the book focuses on mainly, and that is um, higher education as a driver for all of the goals. So every one of the 17 goals uh, in all different areas, environmental, health, poverty, and so forth, require to some degree on universities in the broadest possible way through its teaching, but also its research and community engagement and all of its functions. So, I mean, in a way, what you're saying is that universities have this massive role mm. to play in, in the SDGs, not simply as access, not simply as being part of the education system to meet some of these very lofty goals of 4.7, which, as the previous podcasts have shown, are very sort of diverse and complex ideas. But more importantly, and perhaps most importantly, this idea of higher education as being a driver of development. So... This is a pretty large role for education, for higher education. Can universities actually even fulfill this role, do you think? I think my answer to that is yes, but perhaps not in the way that might immediately be imagined. So I think the potential of universities is extraordinary. And one of the arguments that I try to make in, in all different kinds of fora is that universities are essential for all countries and not just for the wealthy countries that we might imagine might afford it. Universities aren't a luxury, they are a critical part of, of all countries, however impoverished they might be, however, however many challenges they might face. And in fact, we might think of it as being especially important in those. Teaching is, the teaching role of universities is crucial for forming professionals in a whole range of different areas, including the kinds of primary services that, that, that were focused on in the MDGs, but also in the SDGs around education, health, and so forth. There's a much broader teaching role of universities as well for, for civic and personal benefits. There's the research role of universities, breakthroughs in health, the environment, all sorts of areas in which there are huge challenges facing humanity. And then the community engagement role where universities can, can apply that knowledge and, and also uh, engage with the knowledge that communities have. So the potential of universities is extraordinary. Whether they can fulfill that is, is a different matter. Uh, and that does depend on the, the level of quality that universities have, the resourcing that they have, how they're organized, the, the kinds of autonomy they have. So it's not guaranteed. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, the re empirical research that we have, and it's, we have fairly good research on some countries, le less good on others. The research we have shows that they're sometimes able to do that. Sometimes they're able to do that in ways that we hadn't actually imagined. In others, th they struggle to. It's worth pointing out that in low-income countries, universities have roles that are, are not present in higher-income countries as, as providers of basic services often. So communities will often use universities because they don't have other spaces for meeting, for, uh, you know, for cultural pursuits, even for things as basic as, as, as internet access and so forth. So universities can play a really crucial role in all countries. Final point I'd make is that the role of universities as a driver perhaps is not as automatic or guaranteed as we might imagine, even when we might consider there to be a quality university. And that's because there is a level of unpredictability to all processes of learning and scholarship. 
So what do you mean? Like, is there a, a downside sometimes to higher education? There certainly can be a downside. Um, there is a, I mean, universities have not always have, posit have had positive impacts on their societies through history. One of the downsides is in exacerbating inequalities in societies. So while universities can certainly act as mechanisms for social mobility, they can also do the opposite. And, and in many points in history where access has been restricted to an elite or, or for particular religious or language groups or just for men, for example, it has actually made things worse rather than make things better. Right. right. So there's, there is that element. Um, also, universities have been implicated in fostering of, of prejudice and xenophobia as all parts of the education system. Right. Okay. So you're sort of taking this complex view, whether it's good and bad. The development is not always this positive, linear idea, but can have a complex multitude of outcomes as a result of work in higher education or, or any sector, I would imagine, in education more broadly defined. So I guess when we think about the university, what you're sort of saying is that not all universities are the same. There's a lot of potential in higher education, but what actually happens looks different in different contexts, the cultural context, the, the national context, whatever it is. So when you think historically then, how can we make sense of you know, different types of universities, you know, maybe ideal types, not necessarily what actually exists, but, you know, how can we start categorizing different types of universities? Thanks. It's a really important question and one that's not posed often enough, I think. And it's worth saying at the start that the, what we're seeing now in, across the world in higher education is, is much less diversity than, than there might have been. Historically, there have been uh, models of higher learning in many parts of the world, in India, in China, in the Islamic world, in Mesoamerica, other places as well that have been quite distinct. And many of those have been lost. In fact, most mm. of them have been lost through history. Um, we've seen a, a dominance of the European model of university from, from medieval Europe, um, which has, in its spreading around the world, has gained new forms of diversity, but perhaps not as much as we might have wanted and still rooted in some very similar assumptions. So there is a degree of homogeneity around the world. But what I argue is that universities have a kind of a, a, a mixing of different historical models within them. And as you say, they are partly ideal types and partly real historically. So you've got the medieval institution, which was a community of scholars, a community of students engaging in debate over authoritative texts. You have the Humboldtian model that, that emerges in the 19th century of the research university on the pursuit of truth and academic freedom and so forth. You've then got drives towards greater relevance of the university to society and the land-grant universities in the United States were very influential in this regard. Also moves in, in Latin America in the earlier 20th century towards democratization of the university space and leading to what in, in Africa in, in the post-Second World War period was called the developmental university, uh, one that's tied very much to, to service to society. And then most recently, the emergence of the entrepreneurial or the enterprise university, one which is focused on income generation through, through selling of its services. So we've got these different models, and I think we can see them all in our institutions. In some, that you know, the, the entrepreneurial model is, is 
dominant in others we might see you know more of the Humboldtian model but but jostling for space and of course in the different actors that are engaged as well. You are thinking through this developmental university because it sort of links in with the SDG so in what way do you see the developmental university you know how do we think about that university that type of university if it truly does do service to society in the ideal that's written in the SDGs. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the role that's proposed for universities, it is something close to the developmental model, a university that has as its primary purpose serving society in an egalitarian mode, or, or perhaps beyond egalitarian, actually focusing primarily on the most disadvantaged populations, right? privileging those, those populations, reducing poverty and so forth, um, and dealing to a large extent with applied knowledge and an impact on non-academic communities. And there's something of a contradiction there between the kinds of higher education that are promoted by many of the international agencies, which in, in many ways actually undermine that kind of development so? of universities. Particularly through a promotion of expansion at all costs. Now, there is a real need for expanding higher education. Uh, access has grown rapidly over the last 20 years, but much of the expansion has taken place in very commercialized for-profit sectors of higher education, or sometimes distance education with low quality, which has, while it has allowed more people to gain higher education diplomas, has not necessarily allowed them to le learning that will be meaningful in their lives, and certainly hasn't promoted research and community engagement in the public interest. So th there have been dynamics in the growth of higher education sectors which have brought some benefit for individuals but without much of a contribution to the public good. So given this sort of massification of higher education and how that might begin to challenge some of the value and the functions of the university, what sort of trends have you noticed worldwide? You know, let's take a broad view here. Broadly speaking, what sort of major trends do you see in higher education today? Well, one of them I've, I've touched on already, which is the move towards commercialization, which is present in the, the astounding growth of the for-profit sector. And that's very evident in one of the countries that I work very closely with, which is Brazil, but it, you can also see it in many other parts of the world. But also, of course, there's a commercialization of public institutions through so-called cost-sharing policies, the, the charging of fees, and, and other forms of, of, of creeping privatization. Now, commercialization is a term that encompasses a whole range of different activities which have different kinds of influence. And it certainly, in an immediate sense, has assisted in allowing higher education systems to grow. So it is complex. But if we're thinking about the SDGs or about the public good more generally, there are some very worrying outcomes of that. Firstly, around the attaching of quality to price. So as a system starts to marketize more, variable costs of courses will start to become attached either to quality or to prestige, which has worrying implications for equity. But also it makes it much harder for universities to engage in research in the public benefit or community engagement in the public benefit without some kind of an aim to generate income from those communities. It makes it much right. harder to fulfill the SDGs. So that's one of, of the big trends. Uh, a second trend is associated with the very often discussed international rankings in higher education. And 
one of the implications of those rankings is a privileging of a certain kind of university or a certain kind of university action. And I'm not saying for a moment that the, the elite universities that do well in rankings are not benefiting the SDGs. Actually, I think they are in, with a lot of their work. But it's certainly not the only kind of institution that does that. And much of the work that is most beneficial for communities around the world is not valued by those rankings. Community engagement has almost no presence in the rankings. And an inclusive intake of students also is not valued through most of the rankings. In your book, you point to this like <clears throat> unbelievable indicator or proxy for, I think it's quality of teaching in these rankings that's used. Can you explain what it is? Well, in, in the Shanghai ranking, the, the number of alumni with Nobel Prizes is taken as a proxy for quality, which is... That's crazy. <laughs> that, I mean, so, so these, these rankings then, the way they sort of measure this idea of quality across universities can be pretty absurd almost to the extreme sometimes. It's a small minority of all higher education institutions that are listed on international rankings at all. So you could say, well, perhaps it's irrelevant, but actually it does have an influence because even if most institutions are, don't have a realistic chance of, of getting into the upper echelons, it, discursively it does influence the way institutions see themselves. They start not to value the good work that they are doing and they start to aspire towards work that perhaps isn't in, in, in their best interest. I mean, we are sitting here at the Institute of Education and out the front door there's a big sign with the ranking on it. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's the first thing you see when you walk into this building. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the last trends that you write about in your book, you use the word unbundling. Can you explain what this is? I never really came across this term before. So it's a term that comes from business originally, and it's the, the process of separating out products that had previously been sold together for, for commercial advantage, either for the producer or sometimes for the consumer. I suppose the most obvious example in contemporary times is low-cost airlines, where you're not tied into paying for your baggage or your seat or, or so forth. You, you can purchase things individually. In higher education, it's a very controversial process. It's quite incipient. We're just seeing the early signs of it yet. But, for example, the separation of different parts of what we might have considered to be the bundle of higher education, of instruction, assessment, research, extracurricular activities, and so forth. So one way that this has manifested itself is in the provision of no-frills, what I call no-frills courses. Very basic provision, where you pay a lower cost and you just have access to the basic instruction and you have to pay extra if you want some other things. Such as like like access to the library? Well there are, I've never seen a case of no access at all to the <laughs> library but certainly there is an example in the UK where um, you have very minimal access to university facilities beyond what you would basically need to do one's course. So we, you know, this does open the door to a kind of a segregation of, of lower and higher income students. Of course. And where does the process end, right? You can kind of, you almost can get to the point where you have to pay to use the bathroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, it's very worrying. It's a seductive idea because it, it appears to be addressing the, the huge escalation of costs, particularly in the United States and allowing more people into the higher education system. So it's seductive in that sense, but it is very worrying because you then, you start to have a very hierarchical system, a stratified system, mm. where disadvantaged students have access to less. Right. Second class students. Absolutely. And, yeah. 
you know, these are pretty worrying trends, this idea of status, this idea of commodification or commercialization, and this idea of unbundling. So do you think this idea of, you know, the developmental university, service to society, these sort of liberal democratic ideals, is this, you know, what has to change so we can actually create universities that embrace those ideas rather than or you know, it seems as if some of these other ideas and trends you've been talking about sort of are go against some of these developmental ideas. Well, I think we need two things. I think there does need to be state investment. There needs to be public investment and state support. But I wouldn't want to say that all of the initiative needs to come from the central state. I think we also need to create more opportunities for local innovation. So in, in my work, I'm very interested in and supportive of various grassroots initiatives in higher education. I think this is a really important part of, of, of the answer as well. And there are some great examples around the world of developmental institutions. They are, they're fragile in, in many cases, but they're very inspiring. So we've got University for Development Studies in, in northern Ghana, which is a very interesting institution serving a, you know, the arid regions of, of northern Ghana. Uh, working in very innovative ways with integrated teaching and research and community engagement. They're the so-called thematic federal universities in Brazil, which were established in over the last 15 years to promote different forms of international engagement and, and, and local development. They're fragile because, to a large extent, they just depend on the governments of their day. And in Brazil, you've had a, a, a very radical shift to the right and, and a consequent withdrawal of support from these institutions. Mm -hmm. You've also got challenges with innovative institutions starting to, you know, being pulled back to the conventional type over the years. So, so there are challenges, but there are some inspiring examples that we can look to. Mm -hmm. and I mean, I also think about some of these protests in Chile. I know it started recently with bus fare increase, but it sort of dovetailed with that longer student protest from 2013 that was very much against what we might call the neoliberal university or whatever it might, might be. And even here in London, they were just had, in the UK, 60 universities went on strike for, for about eight days, trying to really counter a lot of these same trends that you are talking about. So there are these signs, it seems, of pushback. Now, will it actually result in any action? That's another sort of question, I guess. Absolutely. I think there are mobilizations in different parts of the world. South Africa recently has had a, a, a huge student mobilization around decolonization, the curriculum, and also around fees. I think we to look to Chile as a great example of a student mobilization, not only because of its massiveness, but also because, uh, perhaps unusually, um, but very successfully, what started as a student mobilization started to bring other spheres of society on board uh, and also gained real endorsement from society mm. uh, and you know made things you know the government couldn't ignore it anymore right. uh, so i think it's a really successful example uh, you know that actually makes me think of the chicago teacher strikes in america where it wasn't higher education but it was public school teachers going on strike i think 2012 2013 and one of the reasons that they were successful that many scholars point to is precisely the same reason, is that they had this broad coalition. It wasn't just this narrow focus on teaching and learning, but it brought in all sectors of society and it became such a massive movement that the government had to respond. And more importantly, a lot of the leaders from that strike ended up getting elected 
in many parts in Chicago. So, I mean, it seems like it's a bigger conversation on social mobilization and successful social mobilization. That's a really interesting example. And it, it also makes me think of, you know, these ideas of post-truth and anti-experts that were coming out in 2016 mm -hmm. through, the, through Brexit and, and, and the election in, in the United States. And I think some politicians have tried to drive a wedge between universities mm -hmm. and society by creating resentment. And I think it's a really important task that those involved in, in universities have is to try and communicate with society this, this shared enterprise to a large degree. Exactly. And, and to, to see it as a service to society. And, and it's not just our own little siloed workspaces here. So as great as that makes me feel, this idea of social mobilization and and trying to change universities away from status competition, away from commodification, away from unbundling. I do wonder, and you point out in your book, that you know, there's a critique as well of that movement, of you know, promoting a university for liberal democracy, for furthering capitalism in, in many respects. So how can we even begin to think about post-development, a critique of development itself? So this is why I, I, I ended up uh, making the title For and Beyond, because it is very important to look beyond as well. And I see the SDGs as being important. I'm not trivializing them, but they are an intermediate step. And I think ultimately they're not going to solve all of the problems that, that the global community faces at the moment. As you say, the SDGs are rooted in um, liberal capitalist model, to a large extent a modernization model. And there are some deep flaws in those. And indeed, you know, we can be very skeptical about whether a capitalist system can ever really achieve you know, equality and sustainability in, in a global community. You know, some of the incentives for accumulation and profit that corporations have are, are, are precisely the problem that we have with the fossil fuel lobby and so forth. So there are some real problems there. There's another issue with the SDGs in the lack of attention to questions of identity, culture, language that, that lead into another issue that I think is important to a certain relation to higher education, which is around what Boaventura de Sousa Santos calls a, a dialogue of knowledges. So how can we think about epistemic pluralism? How can we think about not just mainstream Western academic knowledge, which is important, but how do we put that in dialogue with other forms of knowledge from different knowledge communities, from indigenous peoples, from from diverse traditions around the world, which will inevitably enrich that knowledge. Um, and this is a very important aspect of uh, where we go with development uh, and also where we go with higher education. And I think we need to think about two forms of, of creativity and imagination in the higher education space. One is around questioning the institutional forms that we're very familiar with. You know, we look at a university and we assume that it's going to have very particular kinds of structures and practices. And I think we need to open up our imagination, perhaps drawing on Ivan Illich's ideas of de-schooling to think about how our university might be otherwise. And then the second point around epistemic pluralism, around having different kinds of knowledge in the university and drawing on the experiences. I'm familiar with experiences in Latin America indigenous institutions around the continent, but there are some in other parts of the world as well. Swaraj University in India is an interesting example of how we can create universities in different ways. And if we need to go beyond the SDGs, we need to think about sustainable development. It's a different kind of university that's going to help us achieve it.
Well, Chris McGowan, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today, and I look forward to your next book. Thank you very much. Tristan McGowan is a professor at the Institute of Education, University College London. His latest book is Higher Education for and Beyond the Sustainable Development Goals. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.